Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and from Washington, D.C., this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest from the front lines in Ukraine, analyze political and diplomatic developments from around the world, and we hear Francis Sternley's exclusive interview with Senator Mitt Romney. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 14th of September, one year and 202 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, with me in Washington, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, from London, former tank commander and Telegraph contributor Hamish de Bretton-Gordon, and Ukrainian film critic Olga Sidorushkina. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So there's two distinct things happening at the moment, I think, that's been uh, evident overnight. So firstly, Kyiv now appears to be regularly targeting Russia's Black Sea fleet. Uh, we think they were using British Storm Shadow missiles to hit the landing ship and a submarine docked in Sevastopol yesterday. More on that shortly. Um, because We say that because according to the Kremlin, Ukraine launched a maritime drone strike on another Russian patrol ship overnight. Russia's Ministry of Defence said the Sergei Kotov, a corvette, but it's more than a frigate, had been attacked by five naval drones around 5am Moscow time this morning. They said the ship destroyed the uncrewed boats, the, the Ukrainian maritime drones coming towards it, but did not clarify whether they had caused any casualties or damage. Now, this comes as yesterday, a, a Russian submarine appears to have been hit by a, a British Storm Shadow missile strike in that attack on uh, Sevastopol. Russian sources said a volley of 10 missiles and three unmanned naval drones were launched. The Defence Ministry, their Defence Ministry said seven of the missiles have been shot down and the uh, maritime drones destroyed. But Ukrainian and British sources were reported as confirming that at least one Storm Shadow missile had successfully landed, damaging one of the, we think, Kilo-class attack submarines, a diesel-electric submarine that mostly moved back to the uh, Russian port of Novorossiysk, but obviously still in and out of Sevastopol. And there's also a Russian la uh, amphibious landing ship hit in that. The Russian Rybar Telegram channel said, unfortunately, three Storm Shadow missiles reached their target. The landing ship Minsk, we're not sure about that, if that's actually the correct landing ship, but they're saying Minsk, and the submarine Rostov on Don, which were in dry dock, received varying degrees of damage. Now, Mikhailo Elishuk, who's the head of the Ukrainian Air Force, appeared to confirm the storm shadows were used, or they were certainly they considered a successful strike, because he congratulated his pilots for their excellent combat work. Now, storm shadows, you'll remember, fired from Ukrainian fighter jets, have the longest range of all missiles currently that we think in Ukraine's arsenal, and they've been used since they were first given by the Brits back in May, used to strike Russian supply depots, command posts, long-range targets well behind the front lines. Now, overnight, Kiev has launched another wave of drone and cruise missile 
attacks to destroy Russian air defences in Crimea. This is according to Ukrainian media. One source told Ukrainian Pravda that their targeted radar and antennas of an air defence system, the Triumph air defence system, and their Navy units followed up with Neptune cruise missiles. So the Neptune cruise missiles, we think, were the, the have been modified, and we think it was Neptune missiles that took that, that destroyed the the Moskva, the, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Triumph S four hundred, known by NATO as SA SA twenty one Growler, built in the nineteen nineties, but still very capable. So what we think, what it looks like is happening is that this this is all as we call it shaping operations. These repeated, steady uh, attacks on Crimea going after the things that you need to really knock out before you can then do anything more significant on the ground. So going after the radar sites, going after the the, the fuel depots, obviously going after the materiel itself in Sevastopol Harbour. But it's all part of, as it, as these areas become more in range from the, from the Ukrainians as they advance south, it's all part of shaping for something in Crimea. But you know, that's for another day, I think. Now, moving slightly east, there's still a lot of fighting around Bakhmut. Uh, Russia's suffering significant losses. That's according to a spokesperson for the Ukrainian general staff. We think Ukraine has been concentrating on the south of the city. We think they've gained a foothold in Kiva, although there are numerous reports saying that they are under a heavy fire in that area. And then sticking in the east, more than 60 Russian soldiers thought to have been killed or wounded by friendly fire as they made a hasty retreat from the village of Opatina, which we've been talking about for a little while. This is in the Donetsk region. This is coming from Russian sources. They said that we think it was a, a well, a pro-Kremlin military blogger said that 200 Russian troops were withdrawing to more favourable positions as Ukrainian forces moved around the moved around the village we're talking here less than a couple of miles from Donetsk airport no longer functioning not since since the 2014-15 war there but the airport is a significant uh, location as they were moving back it looks as if one source said that um, not everyone retreated clearly and harmoniously some of the fighters retreated to new positions chaotically and almost in panic as a result a tragedy occurred our soldiers died by the fire of their own artillery it's thought that a, a Ukrainian drone operator uh, sorry a Russian drone operator had seen this happening thought it was a Ukrainian attack and called in called in artillery now just going to f- finish off we should always be very wary of statistics because it's just so difficult to try and get any real handle on how accurate they are but i've speaking to a since we've been here in the u.s i've been speaking to various folk and, and one person who, who is probably closer to this than the most of us said that we should i was asking how much we should trust the kind of statistics that's coming out from both sides and russian statistics are massively overblown and it's, it's almost impossible to try and get any truth there whatsoever but the ukrainian statistics he said as a benchmark he always takes about 20 percent off um, so the last um, or the, the last night's stats that I saw from from the Ukrainian general staff said that Russia had lost, as killed and wounded, um, just over two hundred seventy thousand people. Tanks, nearly four thousand six hundred. So take, like I say, take a chunk off it, about twenty percent. These are huge numbers. Armored personnel vehicles, nearly nine thousand. Aircraft, three hundred fifteen. These are big numbers. Yeah, treat them with a bit of caution, pinch of salt, sort of twenty percent of salt. But these are still very significant numbers. And as we move, as this war moves on and becomes more you know, industrial, and it's the long term, who can stay in the fight longer? These will come back to hurt Russia. I've, I've no doubt at all. And just finally, separately here, because it's not connected to those two regions I was talking about, but just to note that seven Ukrainian drones were brought down over Russian border regions last night, according to the Kremlin. Six apparently shot down in in four locations around the Bryansk region. That's roughly halfway between Kiev and Moscow. And the other destroyed further south in Belgorod. So still those long-range drone sites going on from, from Ukraine into Russia and a lot of activity down south. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis, you've had an incredibly busy few days interviewing movers and shakers in Washington. But could you just before you tell us about that, talk us through some of the other diplomatic and political news? Certainly. Thanks, David. Yes, I've been covering the political sphere for 18 months now, but yesterday I really felt I was in it. Friends of the podcast have helped to arrange an exclusive interview with Senator Mitt Romney on what turned out to be within an hour of his announcement that he would not be standing for a second term in the Senate. But more on that in my final thought and relevant extracts from that interview, which we also filmed, will be at the end of the episode. Ironically, it's London, not Washington, Kiev or Moscow, to which I turn first. There has been a significant intervention by the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson in an article for The Spectator, the magazine of Svetlana Morinets, who we've interviewed recently about the issue of medical support for Ukrainian forces on the front line. 
where Mr. Johnson criticizes his successor, Rishi Sunak, for dragging his feet on Ukraine, arguing that the United Kingdom must give more storm shadow missiles and drones to the country, as he accuses the wider West of dragging its feet over supplying weapons. He says that Western governments are still underestimating Kiev's ability to finish the job, his phrase, accusing the government of not only contributing a fraction of what the US has given Ukraine in its fight against the Russian invasion, but also insisting the failure to deliver the weapons Kiev needs to win the war will only prolong the conflict and lead to unnecessary losses and weaken the West. And to quote him, he says, from the UK, they are hoping for more help with howitzers, with storm shadow, with air defences. And they want as much help as we can give on drone technology. He also joins international calls for President Biden to sanction the delivery of the Army tactical missile system, ATACAMS, which, as we've discussed many times, has a range of nearly 200 miles. A subject, I should add, that has been mentioned already in several conversations I've had here with senior figures in Washington. And those interviews will also be coming up in later episodes. What the hell are we waiting for? Uh, Boris Johnson asks, there is only one thing the Ukrainians want from us, and that is the weaponry to finish the job. And so I simply do not understand why we keep dragging our feet. Why are we always so slow? How can we look these men in the eye and explain the delay? Uh, He described the Ukrainian requests as a trivial outlay for such an extraordinary reward. In other news, Putin will reportedly pay a visit to North Korea after hosting Kim Jong-un at the summit in Russia's Far East region yesterday. According to the state news agency, at the end of the reception, Kim Jong-un courteously invited Putin to visit North Korea at a convenient time. Putin accepted the invitation with pleasure and reaffirmed his will to invariably carry forward the history and tradition of the Russia-North Korea friendship. Now, there are no official announcements of an arms deal following proceedings on Wednesday, although Kim was expected to tour an arms factory today and then inspect Russia's Pacific fleet in Vladivostok. Putin, for his part, gave numerous hints that military cooperation was discussed, but disclosed few details. When he was offering a toast, he said he looked forward to the, quote, future strengthening of cooperation and friendship between our countries. In Korea, there is a proverb. Good clothes are those that are are new, but old friends are best friends. And our people say an old friend is better than two new ones. Now, James and I offered more context and analysis to this trip in yesterday's episode. But just one detail I wanted to add. The UN Security Council actually has active sanctions on North Korea following its ballistic missile and nuclear activity. So this is yet another example of Russia pretty brazenly behaving in a way that goes counter to resolutions that did actually pass the UN Council. I'll be at the UN General Assembly in New York next week, where Zelensky will be addressing, and look forward to speaking to officials there about this issue, and of course many others relating to the UN. Now, finally, turning just to a few stories from the German-speaking world, regular listeners will recall the ongoing saga relating to Germany's former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, a man heavily criticised in and outside the country for his friendship with Putin and involvement with Kremlin-linked energy companies. Another row is brewing in Berlin as Olaf Scholz's Social Democrats are preparing to celebrate Schroeder's 60 years as a party member, only months after trying to kick him out over his ties to Russia. Some 50 guests have been invited to a closed-door celebration in Hanover at the end of October, where Mr Schroeder, who was, of course, Germany's Chancellor between 1998 and 2005, will, we understand, be awarded with a lapel pin and certificate 25 years to the day after he first became Chancellor. Now, as party spokesman has told The Telegraph that the celebration will honour the special engagement of a longtime party member and said that such occasions are among the high points of party work, colleagues and friends of the former chancellor are expected to attend. But as I say, the celebration comes for six months after some party colleagues failed in an attempt to have Mr Schroeder booted out of the SPD, something that a party arbitration court rejected in March, saying that in his maintaining contact with the Kremlin after the invasion, Mr Schroeder was, quote, guided by the desire to use his connections to end the war. But since the war began, the Social Democrats have generally kept the man the German tabloids have called Gasgerd over his ties to Russian energy projects at arm's length, 
he didn't receive an invite to this year's party conference. And the leader, Saskia Eskin, said that she didn't recognize him anymore. And he's traveled to Moscow on what he calls these peace missions on at least two occasions since Putin invaded in February last year and even celebrated the anniversary of the end of the Second War at the uh, Second World War at the Russian embassy this year. And he initially refused to give up well-paid jobs on the boards of two Kremlin-linked energy companies, Rosneft and Nord Stream, which, although he stepped down from the latter, uh, the supervisory board in May last year. We understand that the deputy leader of the SPD in the Bundestag, Germany's national parliament, of course, is set to give a welcoming speech at the October event, but repeated requests from the Telegraph for clarity on whether he intends to use this speech to address Mr. Schroeder's ties to the Kremlin have gone unanswered. Now, I also reference criticism being made of Austria this week. And just a quick addition, a disgraced former Austrian foreign minister who danced with Putin at her wedding has suddenly moved to St. Petersburg along with her two ponies, which arrived from Syria on a Russian military plane. Uh, she was forced out of government after a scandal consumed the hard right Freedom Party, which appointed her as Vienna's chief diplomat. And I mention this just in passing because it shows that I think in both German speaking countries, one gets a sense that there is a collective reassessment and increased scrutiny of politicians' ties to Russia. And it appears the spotlight is too much for some. But I wanted to end with the story of a brave German aid worker who narrowly escaped death after the Russian missile attack on his convoy in eastern Ukraine, which Dom reported on earlier in the week. Ruben Mawik was traveling with three colleagues from Road to Relief, an NGO on Monday near Bakhmut, when their vehicle was struck by a Russian shell, causing the car to flip over and catch fire. Emma Igual, the NGO's founder, was killed in the attack, along with Anthony Inet, a Canadian volunteer. Mr. Marwick has appealed to Berlin to send more tanks to Kyiv. Speaking from his hospital bed near the war's front lines in the eastern Donbass, he's urged Germany's government to send more of everything. This war isn't over. It is far from over, he said. Countries may hesitate, David, but others have taken matters into their own hands. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for your updates there. Before we go to Olga, let's uh, bring Hamish de Breton Gordon in. Hamish, we haven't heard from you in a while. I looked over the notes you sent me this morning. You say that there's quite a lot of uh, nuclear updates you want to talk about. So shall we start there? What have you seen? Yes, absolutely. I've actually been at DSCI in London this week and still there, which is the biggest defence show in the world on the planet. And lots of talk about drones and lots of talk about Ukraine, the latest podcast, which seems to be the favoured podcast for military personnel from around the world. So very well done to you on that. I'd just like to talk about a little bit about nuclear, and it really ties into your Francis' update from the Kim Jong-un Putin get-together. Only earlier on this week, Putin uh, accused MI6 of planning an operation to blow up a, a nuclear power station in Russia and also possibly one in Ukraine. This type of force flag operation, which we talked about before, which I saw a lot of in Syria, and I was running a tabletop exercise for emergency workers in Ukraine only yesterday, who are very concerned about these false flags. And because we saw them in Syria, when the Russians generally said there was going to be a chemical attack, I think I worked out that five times out of 10, there then was one in the subsequent weeks or days. So very, the fact that Putin is saying this is a concern, but I, I've spoken to people who know about these things, and that is certainly not the plan as far as the UK security service is going. We then look at, actually, there's been a report of a lot of heavy fighting around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant recently, which is a worrying sign, and also announced yesterday that the Ukraine government are cranking up, they're turning back on their other four nuclear power stations because Ukraine, before the war, about 60% of its power was provided by nuclear power stations. They turned off the four main ones for fear of the fighting around them. But now, although these are, were, were Russian-designed nuclear power stations, now working with the Brits, they now have the nuclear fuel they need to get them started up again. So they will be up and running for the winter. So hopefully Ukraine will, will be absolutely sufficient in power. And, uh, and obviously those power stations 
will be well. When it comes on to Kim Jong-un, now I have written a piece not published yet about the whole issue. The juxtaposition between Putin and Kim Jong-un in eastern Russia talking about getting some very old Soviet ammunition is one thing. And then in, in London, in East London, you have the rest of the world with the most sophisticated weaponry on show. But my theory is what Kim Jong-un is really after is some nuclear technology from the Russians. We know the North Koreans have a ballistic missile. We know they have a warhead. What they haven't been able to do is put the two together. And uh, I'm sure that is top of his agenda at the moment. So it's something that that, that we watch very carefully. Uh, just before I finish on this piece, guys, a headline news in the UK this morning, uh, which may well filter into you guys pretty soon, is a suppressed story over the last 12 months of an RAF Royal Air Force jet, a rivet joint. This is a big four-engine jet the size of a, a, a Dreamliner, something like that, an intelligence collection jet, which 12 months ago, almost to the day, over the Black Sea was attacked by two Russian Su-27s. Two missiles were fired at it. They missed it uh, for a lot of good reasons. It was suppressed. Had it been shot down, that could well have been a severe escalation. The fact that two Russian jets got within sight of a massive British jet and couldn't knock it down is one thing, and I think shows the incompetence. But that is a developing story at this side of the pond. Thank you very much, Hamish. I'm sure Don will want to come back on that and add a few questions or thoughts later. But Hamish, can I stay with you before we go to Olga? You've also written a little bit more about the sort of the clandestine war that Ukraine is operating behind Russian lines. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What more have you found? Because you've talked about this before. How is this developing? Yes, no, no, I, I, absolutely. I think I've described it as a, a you know, death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and uh, for those who, who wanted that, that is up on the Telegraph website at the moment. Uh, and uh, we, we have all been immensely impressed by the amount that uh, the Ukraine uh, special forces and what we call special operation executive, this is a, a term taken from the Second World War, where allies had people behind uh, the German lines uh, blowing up anything they could get hold of. And, and again, this morning is just another Russian ammunition factory that's mysteriously caught fire. Uh, and I think this is now beginning to have a significant impact. Uh, the, the piece I wrote the other day about Elon Musk and Starlink and the fact that that, that hadn't enabled uh, attacks on Sebastopol, hopefully that seems to have, have sorted out. But the coordination between various elements of this sort of secret uh, war that's going on is hugely significant. And the bravery involved to do it is almost unimaginable. But I think it is now we're seeing the amount of attacks in, in Crimea, the amount of attacks, um, not least around Sebastopol, which you've already covered, is being very significant. And not only is it draining the Russian forces of the logistics they need, but the very fragile morale and one of the stories in the piece I put there is a, a commando raid by Ukrainian forces across the Dnipro, capturing uh, some key Russian commanders um, who then very happily spill the beans on social media where all their mates are, um, is sapping the already desperate morales. Although most of the news, most of the activity is about storm shadow and everything else and the really hard brave fighting that is going on the front lines actually it's the people behind the who've got behind the lines whose stories we probably won't hear for many months or if not years we're still learning some heroics that some of the allied operators did in the second world war 75 years later that might well be the case here but yeah, I so take my hat off to these people, incredibly brave and making a real difference, I think. Thank you very much, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. Olga, thank you so much for joining us. Would you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you've been working on in the past few months? Thank you, David. So my name is Olga Sidorovskina. I'm a film curator from Ukraine, uh, 
previously, before the full-scale invasion, I used to live in Odessa and work for Odessa International Film Festival, as well as other festivals in Ukraine. Currently, I'm living in London, and I'm happy to be a part of Ukrainian Institute London team. And this year, we are presenting the fourth annual Ukrainian Film Festival, which starts today at the Curzon Zoho, where we are going to present five screenings of feature, documentary and short films. Olga, can you tell us a little bit more about these films? What are the stories that are being told? And also, it'd be very interesting to hear from our perspective, I think, about what the how is the film industry in Ukraine? How are these things being shot and, and edited? So this year's festival is called Side by Side and it's dedicated to resilience of Ukrainian people and the power of mutual support and solidarity in the face of the war. All the five screenings are dedicated to the sick and we have two documentaries which were made, finished. Also, all of these films are finished or made during the full-scale invasion. Some of them, some of the directors started to work on the films uh, in 2018 or 19, but the, all the works finished in 2022 or 2023. So they're definitely connected to the war and definitely are talking about like the most important stories of Ukrainian people nowadays. Now I want to emphasize one of the uh, greatest works which we are going to introduce today. It's UK premiere of film 20 Days in Mariupol, filmed by Mstislav Chernov in Mariupol with his team, Ukrainian journalist who works for Associated Press. So they spent 20 days on the Russian occupation in the city and they just extremely dedicated journalists and citizens who made an un undescribable work. This film is really difficult and hard to watch, but on the other hand, it's a very important work and we have to see it. Can I ask, what do you hear from your friends and your colleagues back in Ukraine about about their work during the full-scale invasion? If to talk about Ukrainian film industry nowadays, lots of film directors, producers and film professionals joined army and now are on the front line. Others want their even if they used to work on the feature films before, started to do documentary films because it's easy to understand to make feature films that is almost impossible when during the war you cannot you cannot planning the budget or timing or whatever. So uh, people still want to continue their work and still want to tell you uh, stories, what they see and what they are going through. Lots of them now are working as a journalist or doing a documentary films. And one of these people is Alexei Radyansky. He's a film director from Ukraine and he his short film Chernobyl 22 is going to be presented on our festival in a short films program and it's dedicated to the story of people who were on Chernobyl power nuclear station during the Russian occupation. I really appreciate his work as a documentarist while he was filming this. Thank you very much, Olga. Is there anything more you want to say about the festival to our listeners? My question would be, I would have been there, of course, but we're in Washington at the moment. So how can we, when will these films be out to the public? Yes, uh, that's a tricky question. If to talk about the festival, which starts today, so we are adding extra screenings and soon they're going to be announced because tickets are selling really well. I'm happy to know it, but it's a huge interest to our festival. And if to talk about the online screenings, if uh, it's going to be soon, I hope so. But unfortunately for now, only one uh, film, it's a butterfly Vision. It's a feature film by Maxim Dekanichny is available on Mubi and all the others I am sure one day will find their place. Thank you so much for joining us, Olga, and best of luck with the festival in the next few days. Thank um, you, David. Thank you so much for talking to us. So let's go to our final thoughts now. Francis Sternley, would you like to start? Thanks, David. Listeners will shortly hear extended extracts from our exclusive interview with Senator Mitt Romney. Just for context, Senator Romney has been one of the most vocal supporters of Ukraine in the Senate, putting him at odds with many in his own party, the Republicans. 
We discussed that and what he felt was at stake, but we also touched on the rise of China, the health of democracy in the United States, the prospect of Trump returning, and also recalled the time when he ran against Barack Obama as the Republican nominee for president of the United States. I want to thank those listeners, and they know who they are, who helped to facilitate this interview. He is an exceptionally busy man, and it wouldn't have been possible via conventional means, especially given the historic nature of the day. As as I say, he was announcing that he was standing down from the Senate. It was quite a moment, I'll be honest, leaving his office after recording the interview for Ukraine The Latest and seeing the world's media waiting in a long line for us to finish recording. More reflections on the Capitol building, where I also interviewed other congressmen and women on another day. Thanks, too, to those who've written in trying to guess my favourite president. I promise I'll spill the beans later in the week. Thank you very much, Francis. I think I've got a fairly good idea, but I don't want to preempt it just yet. Hamish hey, Breton Gordon. Thank you. Yes, just as I said, I've been at uh, DSCI, the, the defence show in London this week, speaking to a, an awful lot of people, industry, current serving senior British and NATO commanders. And I've got one very interesting conversation with a very senior British commander who recently retired, who was very heavily involved in the Kosovo War. I was there as a very young captain, really cannot remember the great details of it. But he was explaining that in that war, when everything seemed to take an awful long time and progress not being made, but then suddenly almost somebody taking the plug out of a dam. Everything happened very quickly and and we were successful. And he said he'd been discussing, obviously, with, with the counteroffensive, what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. And he and others were very confident now that, that something similar is most likely to happen in Ukraine, that the dam is, the dam of the sort of Russian defences is under severe strain. And at some point, that plug is going to come out. And the expectation is that the counteroffensive will gain momentum and be successful. So it was interesting. I, I, has, I, I add that he is not serving at the moment, but somebody who, who really knows a lot about these things. It's all the discussions we're having about it, all the activity that's going on. I'm still absolutely 100%. Uh, behind and supporting and expect the Ukrainian counteroffensive to be successful, hopefully sooner rather than later. Thank you, Francis and Hamish. Don Nichols. Thanks, David. And and just for the record, my favourite US president was Patrick Swayze. Anyway, so yesterday I was at the Picatinny Arsenal up in New Jersey. That's the US Army's development and manufacturing centre, among, amongst other things. A lot of research and development going on up there. I got to fire, or certainly bear witness, to a 155mm artillery ammunition firing on a range, direct fire, i.e. flat, into a, a sand-filled bank about 100 metres away. They do that to measure pressures, speed, and interesting, not temperature. They use a high-speed camera there that can take a million frames a second, although for normal tests, they, they put it down to 10,000 frames a second. Absolutely incredible. And they're looking at all sorts of things there, including the effect on micro-components. That's the the clever things, for example, that's in and turns an Excalibur shell from a dumb round into a precision munition. And I'm trying to get the footage from all that, all the slow motion imagery of of the of the firing, see what the, the happens to the shell as it's launched. And we've got a lot of friends up there, Piccini. Thanks so much for looking after me yesterday. And please, can we have the footage? Anyway, we, I was having some great chats with General John Rhyme, who's the commanding general up there, and Mr. Grisano, who heads up the development centre, and. That they are ramping up their supply of 155 mil ammunition to, uh, to well, they're, they're aiming to be at 86,000 rounds a month in the very near future. But they made the point that as there's a global shortage of the chemical compounds needed for for modern artillery propellant, so they are moving back to certainly for the effort to help Ukraine, moving back to the older and less safe TNT. And they were talking to me about the, I think it was Iowa, the arms manufacturing, one of the facility there. There's a plaque outside to the 76 civilian workers that have been killed uh, supporting a war effort, mostly in the Second World War, no, none recently. But you'll remember Russia's regular criticism attempt to divide the West by saying, oh, you're not putting anyone in harm's way. It's a ridiculous argument anyway. But I just want to make the point that alongside this huge financial and material support 
to Ukraine. There are now very definitely US civilians taking extra risks to their lives in a very direct way that the workers there producing ammunition and propellants for Ukraine using less less safe material, still within a hugely safe and very well-regulated structure and organisation, but you know it, it, it's a volatile compound. And these are men and women, civilians, US civilians, putting themselves in harm's way. It just needs to be recognised and noted. And as General Ryan said to me, he said, we're rebuilding the arsenal of democracy, which I thought was a, a neat way of encapsulating all the work that they do up there. So it was a fascinating visit. Hopefully that'll be out in the next few days. Hopefully with the footage, please, guys, please. But no, worth noting that today there are men and women, US, putting themselves in harm's way to support Ukraine. Thank you, Dom, Francis and Hamish. A bit of a shame nobody said Bill Pullman yet, actually, for the best US president. Uh, but let's go to Olga for uh, our very final words today. Olga. There are a few things that I want to say about our festival, that all the screenings are supported with Q&As uh, with directors or part of the film crew. And uh, it's very important because uh, some of the works, it's very useful to have a context, to have a possibility to ask questions and to talk what you, about what you've seen. Today we're going to have Mstislav Chernov after the film screening and I really want to invite everyone for this difficult but important work. Thank you, Dom, Francis, Hamish and Olga. Yesterday, Francis Dernley interviewed former presidential candidate and Utah Senator Mitt Romney. Just an hour before the interview, the news broke that Romney would not be seeking re-election in the future. Francis started by asking Senator Romney about that decision. Well, I decided that at the end of a second term, I would be in my mid-80s. And I frankly think it's time for the next generation to step up and make the decisions that shape the world that they're going to be living in. The reality is we're doing a lot of things as the baby boom generation that are going to have a big impact over a long period of time. And we need some young people to step up and say, hey, no, we want to make these decisions in the way we want them to shape our lives. And uh, that's not happening yet. And frankly, it's time for people in their 80s to move on like me. You've also been quite critical, though, of the populist demagogue message, to use your phrase, in the Republican Party. Is that part of it? There's no question but that, that my party has two divisions, at least, uh, and one is very populist, the Donald Trump super MAGA wing of the Republican Party, and I represent a much smaller wing. I call it the wise wing of the Republican Party. And I think that the Trump fever will ultimately break and the parties will realign, but uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. You mentioned China and Russia a moment ago. Eleven years ago, when you were running for the presidency, you appeared on CNN and said, and I quote, Russia is without question our number one geopolitical foe. The Obama campaign pounced on that comment with President Obama saying that the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back. How do you reflect on that statement and that response today? Well, as I said then, there's no question, <laughs> but that at that time, for instance, that the uh, that Russia and Vladimir Putin in particular was the geopolitical adversary of the United States and of the West generally. Frankly, Putin was supporting all of the world's worst actors. He was opposing almost every action we took at the UN to try and rein in North Korea or Iran. And uh, and so he was, if you will, the geopolitical adversary. That doesn't mean we we're in conflict or war with, uh, with Russia, but... Uh, uh, but Russia was was our adversary. And I think he's demonstrated that more clearly in a kinetic way by his awful invasion of Ukraine and other actions he's taken over the uh, the ensuing years. Today, I think you have to look and say that Russia and China, perhaps collaborating or China even on its own, represents a greater threat long term to the prosperity and peace uh, of the West and of the world at large. In May last year, you wrote an essay in the New York Times in which you argued that the West should confront China and other Russian allied nations with an ultimatum. You're either with us or you're with Russia. You cannot be both. In your view, did the West go far enough to isolate Russia? No, I don't think so. I do acknowledge that we made extraordinary strides to come together, provide the weaponry that Ukraine needed 
we have a lot more to do with regards to China. On the Russia front, we've, I think we've, we've collaborated very effectively. I'm concerned that in my country, you're seeing some people say, okay, we've done enough, let's move on. In my opinion, that's very foolish, uh, very short-sighted, because uh, if Russia thinks they can get away with what they did in Ukraine, China's going to feel the same way about Taiwan. Other authoritarians are going to say, why don't we take the population and resources of our neighbor? That's just not something that I think that the, the liberal democracies of the world uh, can countenance. What do you say to those figures then in your own party who say it's too expensive for America to keep supporting Ukraine? You know, there are a lot of excuses that populists have to do what they want to do. But the idea that it's too expensive is a little funny. We spend about $850 billion a year on defense. We're using about 5% of that to help Ukraine. My goodness, to defend freedom and to decimate the Russian military, a, a country with 1,500 nuclear weapons aimed at us, to be able to do that with 5% of your, res- of your military budget strikes me as an extraordinarily wise investment and not, not by any means something we can't afford. How would President Romney have handled President Putin? Well, I think President Putin responds to strength and predictability. And, uh, and I would have made it uh, very clear from the very beginning that we would stand with Ukraine and that we would do everything in our power to align with our friends throughout the world. I mean, the, the great power of freedom and, and freedom-loving countries is that we link arms with one another and, and that we, we work in, in solidarity. And I, by the way, I believe President Biden has done a nice job in, in making sure that people recognize that the NATO alliance and, and, fr- and freedom-loving nations generally have come together. So my posture would have not been dramatically different than that that you've seen from the current president. I think benefit of hindsight I would uh, hope that I would have moved more quickly to get more advanced military support, S-16s and more longer-range missiles, cluster bombs, and so forth, to get that more quickly so that uh, Ukraine had a better shot of actually defeating Russia as opposed to having it drag out as long as it, as it is. You sound quite favorable towards American foreign policy then. How would you factor Afghanistan into that? The mistake in Afghanistan was twofold, by, or by two people, rather. One, President Trump was wrong to negotiate the departure from Afghanistan with the Taliban without involving the government of Afghanistan at that time, and then putting in place a timetable that was unrealistic. And then number two, President Biden followed through with that timetable and was terribly prepared to see the withdrawal of our troops and the troops of our friends and allies around the world. It was a awful experience. And we've shown we keep doing this. We make bad foreign policy decisions. We're generally forgiven because people believe, and I believe correctly, that we're trying to do our best. But we've made some big mistakes. What advice would you give to European countries, therefore, still, of course, heavily reliant on U.S. military support as we enter the presidential election year? You know, I think the the best thing European countries can do to be confident in ongoing U.S. support for NATO and, and, and other investments is to show that European countries want to carry their own weight and are willing to carry their own weight and to make the investment they need to keep up with. What we're doing. Well, some are and some aren't. About half of the uh, NATO nations have reached the 2% of GDP goal and some haven't. And uh, if, the advice I would give is if you want to be sure that in the event that Donald Trump gets reelected, and he's kind of wobbly on, on NATO. Uh, if you show that you've got, you know, you made a commitment yourself, that makes it far more likely that he would stick with the, uh, the NATO alliance. That, By the way, I believe is no, without question, is, is, has been largely responsible for preserving world peace over the past half a century. Given what you've just said, would you be voting for President Biden if it was Donald Trump who had the Republican nomination? Well, I'm not going to be supporting uh, President Trump, former President Trump, under any circumstance. Uh, I happen to believe that character is destiny, and I believe that a number of his personality and character flaws are ones that would make it impossible for me to support him. If the Republicans more broadly take back the White House, should the West be worried? Yeah, the West should always be worried. Um, Look, in the history of the world, authoritarianism has been the default setting. I mean, you go back thousands of years, it's one authoritarian regime after the other, and they all collapse one after the other. Freedom is hard to preserve. So any free nation has to recognize that we, we want to make sure that the largest and strongest military and economy of our group is doing well and is committed to the principles that we agree on. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's reason for worry. 
At the same time, I happen to believe that freedom is an extraordinary elixir and that nations that embrace freedom are more likely to be unified and more likely to lead the world from a technological and economic standpoint into the future. Because it, it does feel rather like the world is being divided again into democracies and autocracies. And in that vein, if the US is the head of the latter, how healthy do you think American democracy is? Uh, I do believe that our democracy remains extraordinarily strong, but I believe that we do need to not just confront Russia and Ukraine, but also say, all right, let's strike at some of the, the sources of the power that the authoritarians have, which largely comes from their economic might. Uh, they're not as powerful as we are collectively, but they need access to our markets, and they should only have free access to our markets if they're playing by the same rules the rest of us play by. And so far, we haven't come together as a group of democracies and said, okay, look, let's talk about what the rules are. Let's make sure that China understands to be sending their products into our markets. You've got to live by these rules. You can't engage in predatory pricing. You can't subsidize uh, technologies as you have. You can't uh, monopolize key raw materials that are necessary for the uh, products of the future. These things you can't do and expect to have access to our markets. In a meeting of the Foreign Relations Committee, you said, I don't want to oversimplify our successful strategy relative to the former Soviet Union, but we outcompeted them militarily, economically, and they finally cried uncle. What strategy should America and the wider West adopt, in your view, towards Russia and, by extension, the next major geopolitical rival, China? Yeah, I, I wish we had a strategy. I, I think if you look at, at China, they've laid out where they want to be in 2049, where they want to be along the way. They have a, a strategy which is not just military, but also geopolitical. They also have an economic strategy. They're going to go after key, fast-growing industries and establish dominance, raw material dominance, sourcing through their Belt and Road. I mean, it's a very complicated, complex, and comprehensive strategy. Do we in the West have the same? No. And so part one is we have developed that kind of strategy and talk amongst ourselves and say, OK, how are we going to deal with the, the emergence of China? And my view is not to say, how do we get ready to fight them? Because no one wants to see a fight between the authoritarian nations and the free nations. But how can we get them to, to become diverted from a course of conflict and instead play by the same rules we're playing by? And by the way, if we play by the same rules, I'm happy to bet that we'll win because, again, freedom is pretty powerful. But we got to get them to play by the rules. And I believe at this stage, the way to uh, divert them from a path of conflict is to engage them in adopting and following the rules of commerce that the rest of us live by. That, if you will, it's commerce that fuels their, their expansion of their military might and their expansion into geopolitical entities. And so we got to get the commerce part right. We didn't get the commerce strategy right with Russia, though, did we? So how do we get it right with China? Well, uh, being able to, to uh, if you will, dissuade Russia uh, from its massive financial resources uh, is kind of a challenge when their resources are raw ingredients or, or our coal and oil. I mean, uh, they've got those things. So that's a little harder for us to crimp that, although with the sanctions, we're making it a little uh, more painful for Russia. But with regards to China... Their resources come from manufactured goods that they sell into our markets, and they're able to make exceptional profit by doing so by driving Western businesses out of business. So this is a place where we come together, and if we say we're going to exercise our economic might to say to the Chinese, you, we're not going to buy your products. We're not going to let you come into our markets unless you agree that you can't subsidize these key industries, that you can't monopolize certain raw materials. We have the capacity to make that kind of a strategy and to have an impact by virtue of doing so. To get, to get Saudi Arabia to struggle with poverty, it would be almost impossible given their, their oil wealth. Same thing was true with Russia. So talk softly and carry a big stick to quote you. Well, we at least need to, to decide what it is we're going to do as opposed to respond ad hoc to the various outrages that will occur. The, the Chinese and the Russians are, are showing that they will, they will take action that surprises us. We will then uh, try and respond to those things, but response is never as effective a, 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 a tool uh, for a shaping behavior as forethought and strategy. 
talking about strategic elements of this, in democracies, it's messy trying to persuade allies to line up. Yes, yes. You've been in politics a long time. How feasible is it to do that when you know, you're comparing systems with democracies and autocracies? Well, I would have thought it would have been, would have been almost impossible to get the great free nations of the world to come together and collaborate on a strategy to, to try and shape China's plans. But then Russia did something unexpected by invading Ukraine. And that woke up a lot of people. They said, oh, okay, these authoritarians are not just going to try and win by a skilled foresight and industry, but instead they're going to invade a free neighbor. And I think that made people like the leaders of Finland and, and Sweden and the people of those countries say, oh, we need to come together and collaborate. And I think you're seeing the same in the Pacific, meaning that, that South Korea and Japan, who'd been, a, that been at loggerheads for a while, have now reproached each other in part because they recognize a common need. And again, I, th I think we all recognize that it's in the world's interest to get China to play by the rules as opposed to say, okay, let's get ready to go to war with China. That, no one wants that. I mean, it, it's really unthinkable in, a, in this world with nations having the nuclear capacity we have to think about an all-out war between superpowers. That's just that's not something we can possibly countenance. Even a conventional war is, not, is something that I think is hard to imagine. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Today's episode was produced by Elliot Lampett in London and Giles Gere in Washington. The exec producers are me, David Knowles, and Louisa Wells. 